Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 499. We're almost at episode 500, and I'm so excited about this week's episode. I'm joined this week by the Darren McGarvey, also known as Loki, L-O-K-I, the, the Scottish rapper. He's been requested for a long time on this podcast, so I know a lot of you are going to be very happy we had this conversation. And we recorded it last week, and it was going to come out at the end of the month, but I've moved it forward because people listening, we go in quick. Like, we don't mess around on this. This episode's been a long time coming, and we get right in there speaking on some current stuff, some future stuff. And yeah, it was just a really good conversation. If this is your first time tuning in, we mentioned um, the other Loki, L-O-W-K-E-Y. The episode I did with that Loki is amazing. That was about a year or so ago. The two parts I did with Akala are worth going back and having a, a listen to. They're really strong strong episodes and one of the things we talk about i did an episode about the defund the police movement a couple of years ago now because i didn't really understand it and i wanted to look into it and figure it out because i was like what so we're just saying we're not going to have police so what we're going to do and it's not as simple as that at all so it's a really interesting episode regardless of what side of that fence you sit on or you think you sit on like i've had a lot of police officers hit me up about that episode and say they learned a lot and had misunderstood a lot yeah i spoke to two different a professor and a doctor who've studied the subject extensively professor alex vitali and adam elliot cooper and yeah really interesting chats the killer mike episode if we're talking about rappers activists that's a hell of a listen um, I mentioned in this episode how my circle of Scottish friends has grown a lot. Part of that is through L- L- Lemmy, who I did a two-parter with again a few years back. So go and dig into any of those if you fancy it. I'll do all the, the usual things in a minute, but also I want to say, so one of the things that we talk about in this is Darren's book, The Social Distance Between Us. But one of the things we get really into at the end, which I'm excited about, is the live tour of it. Because... The books are amazing, like they're wonderfully researched studies in kind of society and communities and politics. But because of his experience as a rapper, his experience in performance, the live tours are amazing. So I wanted to give you a quick rundown. Right, on the 22nd of Feb, it'll be at the David Holm Institute, Baldur's, uh, the 3rd of March, Tivoli Theatre, Aberdeen. 10th of March, North Edinburgh Arts, Edinburgh. 17th of March, Quaint Ways Live, Chester. 24th of March, Fullerton Connections, Irvine. 25th of March, Recovery Coco, Newcastle. 28th, La Violetta Society, Liverpool. 31st, Beacon Hall, Greenock. And then in April, the 7th of April, King's Live Lounge, Kirkaldy, the 14th, Eden Court, Inverness, 21st, The View, Oban, 12th of May, Tannehill Centre, Fergusley Park, 14th of May, Centre Stage, Kilmarnock, uh, the 2nd of June, Dorking Hall, Dorking, and the 8th of July, Yeoford Community Hall, Devon. Let me just do a quick scroll on his socials as well, because I'm sure there's a big... I'm sure there was a big Dublin date. Yeah, I mean, f- follow him in social on socials, because uh, you'll keep nicely up to date there, and there's loads of good stuff. But yeah, did you hear my pauses in between the months? Because what I was doing was counting on my fingers as to which month it was which. That's weird, isn't it? I'm a, 30, a 41-year-old man, um, and I see... The fifth month, and I go, May, in my head. Uh, yeah, as ever, we're brought to you by speech records.com. You can get all my merch over there. You can support the podcast by getting the merch, or you can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip, or you can head to twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pip. Yo, as said, it's where we've built this really amazing community of people. There's an amazing amount of streamers I'm a big fan of. I want to do a Twitch special at some point and 
do a load of episodes with streamers. Maybe I'll do them as live podcasts on Twitch. Um, yeah, I'll think on all of that. Anyway, obviously we're going to be back next week for the big 500th episode. But for now, this is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 499 with Darren McGarvey. I'm joined today by Darren McCarvey, also known as, as as Loki. How are you, man? How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. It's weird. It feels like I've spent four years or so of doing this podcast, starting every other episode by kind of saying we're in really weird times, and it's and and you know emotionally, mentally, p- p- politically, socially, and as we record this, there's fucked up shit going on in America with the police force continuing to go on in America with the police force. I mean, it's as if England is quickly forgetting that it was only a couple of weeks ago that it was revealed seemingly the biggest serial rapist in my lifetime, at at least, was a police officer. It's weird times and it's hard to get your head round and it's I don't know if there's a level of desensitization as we're exposed to more and more of these constant things. Yeah. Yeah. It's why I like to kind of say at the start, I really mean it when I say, how are you? Because it's a fucking, it's a hard one to get your head around, right? Oh, certainly. Um, I mean, it's, there's the information overload as well. So you're, mm. you're, you're being told what the, the, the news is and then you're getting a million different takes about what it is as well. And it can be difficult sometimes to kind of really drop the anchor and say, this is what's happening in reality, because there's always something else that's contradicting what seems obvious or someone who's counteracting it. So I think like just engaging with current events just now is almost a kind of faith-based thing as well. Yeah, I I completely agree on that. And it's a weird one because, as you say, because of all the different takes and all the different opinions, you kind of feel, right, I have to approach everything neutral and, and make my own decision. But in this particular example, my attitude has been like, I don't need to watch another video of a black man being killed by the police. It's like, I don't want to have a swayed opinion, but equally, there's been too many in recent years already. I don't need to witness that myself to to, to, to have an opinion again, yeah, sadly. It's, it's, you know? it's not something that's terribly difficult to verify. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it, was, it kind of goes back to a sort of Chris Rock joke where he's talking about, you know, he recognises that policing is a difficult job and that it's dangerous. But yeah. this whole kind of, oh, there's a few bad apples defence yeah. that you often hear. Yeah. It's kind of lame. And, and he makes the point, you know, you don't you don't get away with that in the airlines. You know, yeah. it's just a, yeah. we have mo- mostly good pilots, but some people like to crash planes into mountains. It's just a few bad apples. I think there's something about the culture of policing that attracts uh, a certain type of personality. And also um, there's something about how that culture of policing interacts with other people. Because obviously there's a real bystander effect in some of these more egregious examples of police brutality, where there are people there who know what's happening is wrong, but somehow feel paralysed from... Uh, acting to stop it and so it's 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 about power it's about accountability it's about a lack of transparency and the only way really you get a grip on that is by making some very strong examples of what happens if you cross that line without justifiable cause on on that chris rock quote there the thing that gets me i was reading a tweet about this because it hadn't crossed my mind was with the police and a few times with political things recently, the few bad apples quote gets thrown about a lot and people forget the full quote. The full quote is, a few bad apples spoiled a bunch. Mm. And the bunch is spoiled now. Like, you, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not meant to be a few bad apples and we'll get rid of them. It's a few bad apples ruins the whole system that they are in and it spreads and we have to look at Destructuring and reform. We won't go into it in big detail, but I did a I did a special episode on the on the on the defund the police movement because it was a movement I didn't understand. I just heard the name a lot, and I think it's a bad name because it doesn't exactly explain what 
the idea is there. But speaking to, you know, a couple of professors who have are experts on this subject and have looked through the history of the police force and corruption and so on and so forth, I did end up coming out of that kind of going, well, yeah, we, we can't just fix this or patch over. And a, a, a lot of people are saying at the moment that you don't sort, like, representation within, for example, a racist or classist system isn't going to stop it being racist and classist. The solution isn't necessarily having more black people, more working class people or whatever else in the police force if the system is built to be against the working classes. And, yeah, it, and yeah. it clearly is, you know. No, of, of course, I think it's just police, policing and criminal justice generally and law enforcement, these are just what these are just an institution of many institutions across yeah. the landscape that people are justifiably losing faith in. Yeah. The faith, faith in competence, faith that justice will be done, faith that there is uh, relevant accountability at all chains of governance within in them. And yeah. really that culture is set right at the top. So in the UK where you, you have uh, every day it's, it's a conservative minister who's being questioned about their behaviour and about the legality of their conduct. Mm -hmm. What sort of message does that send? How does that reverberate down the society? And what it does is it just it creates a sense for the people who are willing to break rules and bend rules and who are self-interested enough to look at being a public servant as an opportunity to advance their own interests. They yeah. start testing the boundaries of what they can do. Yeah. I mean, these, these are people you've got, you've got Zahawi there, who probably has a small island of accountants who will be reclaiming the price of stamps and paper clips and PIMs to the to the decimal point, but forgetting to tell anyone that he made multi, multi millions of pounds. This yeah. is a guy who's already a multi-millionaire who yeah. still takes donations from Panama Papers All-Stars to fund his prime ministerial campaigns. So this tells you something about not just the low character of individuals, but when more than one individual, whether it's in the police or whether it's in the government, are being caught out for the same thing, mm -hmm. and those people don't see how wrong it is what they've done, that speaks to culture, a culture of an institution, a culture in a particular area of public life, policing, government, whatever. And so it's very, very difficult to change that because it means that you have to reform the institutions themselves, but the institution, the institution, if you think about it like an organism, mm -hmm. it's designed to perpetuate itself and protect itself yeah. from reform, from change, from collapse. Think of all the people that you know who went to work for a local authority with big ideas about how they were going to have a positive impact on the community. And within a few years, they're just demoralised and they're just doing it for the money because the institution drains them of all enthusiasm because it's so yeah. bureaucratic, because it's so dysfunctional. And I think government and policing are the same. You can get people who go in there one way, the, then the, the just the process of being in the institution interacts with them in such a way that it can fundamentally change their character and nature. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm aware that I've jumped in to our first ever conversation fucking heavy and miserable so uh, 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 apologies for, for setting such a tone but um on a more positive note you, you you've been a requested guest on this podcast for a long time so I'm dead excited to be talking to you I want to talk about a lot and just get to know you a bit better really we've had a few dms back and forth um mm. I, I want to talk about your upcoming the social distance between us tour I want to talk about the, the book of the same name I want to to talk about rap as that's how I first heard about you mm -hmm. but let's start with kind of a bit of of your history I guess you, you you're from the south side of Glasgow right that's yeah. where you've come up and what's informed a lot of your your views and your and your approach absolutely I grew up in Pollock housing estate or scheme as we call it up here yeah. um it was at the top and bottom of all the wrong league tables in the 80s and 90s so it was it was one of those housing schemes that that showed a lot of promise when it was created yeah. in the fifties. You know, wide open spaces, recreational facilities, semi detached housings with bathrooms and toilets, and it was really one of those those uh, areas that you you get a lot of them down south as well, particularly in London, 
where a lot of design philosophy has been poured into it by the cutting-edge architects of the day with this almost utopian vision of how a community could live. But yeah. it was all contingent on the idea that there would always be jobs, that there would always be opportunities. And so, obviously, as post-industrialisation set in, a lot of these communities, they began to fall to the wayside and show various forms of dereliction. So I grew up at, at the kind of peak of that, mm. uh, 80s, 90s, I experienced different aspects that you associate with deprived communities. Like uh, my mother was was a chronic alcoholic. There was not a lot of opportunity in the area. Uh, you never got the sense that you were going to go out to do something amazing with your life. Uh, you know, there was always this kind of suppression of aspiration or, or rather a realism about aspiration, just recognising, you know, people like us don't write books. I remember telling a careers advisor that I wanted to go into acting and just I remember just this very sceptical expression on their face. Yeah. And, and, and so that's the kind of soup that we swam in. But also there was a lot of positive aspects to it. There was a lot of militancy when I was growing up, a lot of resistance. You had the militant movement, which part of it came out of Pollock. You had the um, environmental protests against the, a, a motorway that was being built through a local park. And so I, I really grew up in a culture where on one hand, you recognise that there are problems in your community, but on the other hand, you're responsible for trying to do something about it. And so that that kind of the tension between these two things really just sort of fuels my creativity, whether it's in hip hop uh, or, or latterly writing, broadcasting and, and things of that nature. It's obviously, it's always fascinating to look back at history and, and, and look back at social history. But that era, era of architecture is really interesting because you like to hope that at the time, a lot of these places that you go to now and look really run down and, and almost prison-like were built with a positive idea. That Le Corbusier kind of era of we can build this area that will have everything you need in there, or have your healthcare, or have your 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 shops, all of this thing in one place. But that quickly turned into because that was built for the working classes. It quickly turned into we'll build somewhere to keep you here, so that you don't come over here, so that you don't come into our nice part of the city. And again, it does seem that when you look back, it was built with positive intention, but so quickly it became exactly that here's where we keep the poor people and they don't yeah. they don't have to come into into town anymore to go into the shops or to 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 go into habits they can just do everything they need here and then as you say as soon as jobs dry up and money dries up that becomes a very tough place to be yeah definitely and there are some quite striking examples as well the gorbals which is is one of the uh, more famous glasgow schemes that maybe some of your listeners will even have heard of it's been kind of immortalized in various works of literature famous boxers have come for the area and it was sort of it, it was really kind of it, the gorbals really became glasgow's reputation you know and at a certain time for its uh, Razor gangs and mm-hmm. uh, sky ri- uh, high-rise flats, communities and things like that. But there's a very striking example of the Queen Elizabeth flats, which are now demolished. They were demolished within 20 years of being built. Now, these were supposed to be the kind of top-of-the-range, cutting-edge yeah. design philosophy. Sir Basil Spence had designed lots of communities across Britain. He was brought in. And so his idea was... Uh, these high-rise communities will save space on the ground. They'll offer panoramic views. They'll offer... Uh, all sorts of things that that will, will help to keep people feeling like their needs are being met. But the, the problem with the design was that it was supposed to be a kind of nod to Glasgow's shipping history. Mm. So it was supposed to be designed like a kind of Spanish ships in full sail, right? Yeah. But that only made sense from about a mile away from it, you know? Yeah. So there in there you see kind of middle-class assumptions about what people need and about what buildings are for. And so in, in the surface, it's a great idea. And still these buildings remain of, of, of real architectural significance for positive and negative. But the people who lived in them couldn't see that that was the philosophy of it. They didn't have panoramic views because they were all looking out their window onto other high-rise flats. Yeah. And so when, when the jobs dried up, and obviously the Gorbos was right on the Clyde, so it was really dependent on that industry, then these just became uh, opportunities for drug runners, for for uh, all sorts of other behaviours to occur. 
real generational trauma took place in there. You know, my family comes out of that. That's where my mother grew up in the Gorbals. Mm. And and so you can see how, you know, economic shocks and turbulence can interact with political short-termism and well-meaning middle-class assumption to create nightmare conditions for poor yeah. people who have no voice to interject in the chain of assumptions that's taken place and say, listen, what you're doing is not a great idea. And uh, it's it's taken the best part of 50 years to sort the gorbals out. And now, thanks to, a, I would say, quite a successful process of gentrification, and there are some successful processes where there's a collaboration that's going on mm-hmm. with the, the gentrifying forces, local authority and the local community, uh, then, you know, you have aesthetically a far more pleasing area to look at, far high quality housing that is affordable. It still feels like the Gorbals, but it genuinely does feel like it's uh, improved a lot. And, and I'm sure a lot of the locals that, that have been there for a long time would say that. It's really interesting. It's really interesting, the 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 idea of... I'm obs- obsessed with the the loss of the idea of nuance in 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 modern society and modern debate and that was interesting hit there because i think i genuinely think that's the first time i've heard someone speak of any positives of gentrification of of that it can be done because it's becomes such a a dirty word and rightfully so because it's so often negative but um I, I spend a fair bit of time in margate at the moment and one of the things i like there is it and again, it's something that has to be kept an eye on, but it feels like it's not just been the middle classes swooping in and taking it for themselves. It still feels like the Margate I used to go to when I was young because we couldn't afford to go somewhere nice. It's still, yeah. it's still got a certain edge to it. But, you know, there's a lot of nicer stuff coming in and it feels like, I don't know, it's, it's potentially being done the right way. Again, these things can flip on a dime, you know, and become just taken away from the people. But it's really interesting to hear of potentially positive gentrification as such going on there. I've witnessed what's going on in Margate firsthand as well. I travelled there in 2019 for research for the book because this was a big lightning Margate in that area of the country in general was a big lightning rod for for Brexit. Mm. And so there were lots of interesting dynamics there that I wanted to explore firsthand. Yeah. So I tra- travelled there, I was taken around uh, the community by a local who got me access to various you know, families who had uh, migrated at different points, yeah. was getting a lot of first-hand testimony and really wow. did get a chance to see some of the, 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 the more successful aspects of the gentrification process that you talk about. Yeah. I think when it succeeds, it's when it happens slowly because yeah. I think incremental change is almost imperceptible. Uh, but see when you're just demolishing something and then something new just springs up in its place. Like you see where a lot of these new houses being built very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's almost yeah. just like they're being superimposed on the area. I yeah. think that that can be quite socially and culturally traumatic, particularly for older people who really have experienced, you know, a long period of change, which I think the older you get and maybe the most small C conservative you get, more anxious you get, it can be quite challenging. And obviously there have been political forces that have been operating in areas like that very deliberately to exploit a lot of the anxiety and a lot of the fear. But one of the best antidotes for that is for uh, locals to to, to uh, come into contact with the other, whether that's, yeah. you know, someone setting up a butcher, someone setting up a bakery, someone setting up a cafe. Maybe they came from Romania. Maybe they came from Belgium. Uh, maybe they came from Poland, whatever. And then suddenly that barrier begins to break down and you're kind of Farage-esque platitudes. They don't land or have the same kind of resonance when people mm-hmm. have an experience to draw from that was positive. But obviously, even in Margate, uh, you've got areas like Clifton, which are some of the poorest areas in in the UK. And that is contrasted with Kent generally being yeah. the wealthiest part of the country. Um, and so, I mean, there's just so many interesting, uh, there's so many interesting lenses through which to construe a lot of what we see. But I think for me, the big thing Zooming right into what is the what is one of the core reasons for what we see in Britain today, which is this kind of incompetently managed economic political decline, 
And 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 to me, it's it's often the most obvious answer, which is the hardest one to accept. Mm-hmm. And I believe that um, it's it's partly due to an overabundance of privately educated, socially inexperienced, culturally inept elites who ascend to the top of all institutions and govern by assumption. And and this creates a situation where people feel like they're being governed by aliens. They don't understand their motivations for taking the decisions that they take. Yeah. And and really this, as I said earlier, reverberates through our institutions. And ultimately, you have a bunch of people who don't know what living in poverty is like, taking all of the key decisions that affect people who are living in poverty. And that's the thesis of the book. That ultimately is the, the real kind of core of, of what I'm about, trying to find different ways to convey that, contextualise that. But I think it's a much bigger problem than the, the current discourse on Twitter or among the commentariat would suggest. And partly it's because a lot of them are from the same elevated social class. So they're not wired up to perceive that actually it's them and not poverty that's the problem. And and again, I think it, it, it that also comes down to a phrase you used earlier of contact with with the other. And I think what you articulate or the examples you gave really well were extended contact with the other, a baker's, a butcher's, something that's there regularly. Whereas the problem with even the well-meaning people from the elite classes or that world might have contact with the other, but that'll be a once a month council open yeah. open house kind of meeting thing. And they'll in their head be, well, I'm communicating, I'm interacting. And the example you gave at first was to talk about the breaking down of kind of bigotry or racism or, or all those other fears that that working class people often have. The, the part of Essex I'm in, I've grown up in, I've lived in this small town my whole life. We were a stronghold for UKIP and all of these, f- f- Farage, all of that. Nick Griffin, when he disappeared for a bit after being egged or whatever, the first place he reappeared was up the road from me. And the reason for that is where we are with respect to London is we got the immigration and influx of different cultures 20, 30 years after South London got it. So South London got it, had the backlash, got used to it, lived together, and you started to see these communities work together and become one. And then parts of Essex, as we'll see with parts of Kent and all this kind of thing, got that 20, 30 years on and they were like, well, who are these people? And, yeah. and, and what's going on here? And that's then easy to to control and stir up and turn into hatred and jealousy and, and fear. And as you say, I think it is that extended contact with the other that makes you go, all oh, right, these are normal people. Course, it's not something to fear. Of course. And the thing with human beings is highly sophisticated species with one caveat, it's only at close proximity that we're sophisticated, mm-hmm. right? So we we evolved in small groups, families, tribes, and so we're very, very sophisticated at understanding where our place is at close proximity in communities, at reading people based on their body language, their gaze direction, inferring what their intentions are, basically sorting everything out into good guy, bad guy, right? The minute that you start to scale things up, uh, to a wider social level, then we still have those instincts to try and do all that sorting out, but we can't quite do it with the same level of accuracy. And so this is why, as you allude to, actually experiencing people and walking alongside them for a, 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 a meaningful amount of time helps automatically to break down a lot of those barriers because most human beings in their right mind Despite their reservations, despite their fears, despite what they disagree on, there's a natural cooperation instinct that kicks in. And 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 you can you can detect that cooperation instinct in its absence on, on social media. Yeah. Well, we're still behaving the same, but there is this kind of disinhibitive effect where we're not got that sense of what would the consequences be if I if I actually said this in real life because you're behind Twitter and you feel quite safe. And so there is no substitute for a front row seat into a community, into a particular social, cultural or economic problem. And that is the thing that our top flight politicians and a lot of our media simply don't have. And that is why you have this discourse and political policy implementation and planning that doesn't seem to bear any resemblance to what is actually happening in reality. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And again, I think social media amplifies a lot of that. You mentioned when we were talking about those developments and estates or schemes in Glasgow, you mentioned the voiceless or those who don't have a a voice. And I think Scotland is really interesting at the moment. I've got family in Scotland and in, in recent years, somehow I seem to have really increase the percentage of people in my social circle that are Scottish. So I don't know if I'm seeing an amplified version of this, but it feels in recent years that you guys are the fucking rebel alliance constantly <laughs> having a voice and fighting against the Tory Death Star at the moment because of the way the the the, the politics has, has landed with elections and whatnot. And, you know, an easy example is the recent arguments over trans rights. And it feels like Scotland... repeatedly at the moment are the ones standing up politically and being able to say, excuse me, I don't agree with that and we're going to argue against it and fight against it. So how does it feel at the moment to be Scottish and to kind of feel like kind of on the the right side of history as such from where I'm sitting? In Scotland, perhaps we don't... We we see it slightly differently because of the proximity. So there's a lot of politics that's going on. Mm-hmm. So it's it's no surprise, you know, whatever issue you choose, there's a big incentive for the Scottish government to take a position or reach a position that is the opposite of the UK government, right? Mm-hmm. And that's politics, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got these, you've got that tension between the two because a big part of the SNP's success has been to successfully contrast Scotland as vastly culturally and politically different from England. And there are a couple of instances where that is true, but there are some instances where it's not very true as well. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to do is I try to make sure that I'm not getting swept up in that kind of intoxicating sense of national nationalist smugness pride. Because... Being proud of where you come from is a bit like bragging because you're tall. You don't really have <laughs> a say over yeah. it. But yeah. I would say I would say that obviously in the areas that I am particularly interested in is 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 more around what the Scottish government has attempted to do, at least in the areas of social inequality. Mm-hmm. So there there are increased benefits for children who grow up in poverty. There is increased access for working class uh, students to go to university. Obviously, all of these policies are not perfect, but there's certainly a more concerted effort to use the powers that are available, including raising taxes in Scotland on, on wealthier people. Coincidentally, at the point where I started making a bit more money <laughs> and then, and then you know, <laughs> trying to leverage that to distribute opportunity more evenly. Yeah. Now, it's not perfect. The, the, the SNP really are a kind of, a centrist government in the mould of New Labour, really very effective effective at public relations. Nicola Sturgeon, very gifted communicator. All of the same tropes that you would have associated with Blair in the early days, really. Mm-hmm. But part of the, the, the success of them also is the kind of brand loyalty because independence is the end game for about 45% of Scots. So they're going to vote for this, the, the Scottish National Party in any event, regardless, and uh, because the SNP they see is the only route to, to success. So I said earlier on that um, I first heard of you through hip-hop, and then I heard a lot about your move into kind of activism and social and political commentary. And it wasn't until I started to do my research that I kind of got that slightly the wrong way round because early on you were talking about you you did some stuff for BBC Scotland about uh, again a lot of things class class based. So what was your kind of journey, I guess, to finding your voice, wherever that be, in hip hop or in activism or social commentary? Yeah, well, I mean, fortunate for me, as it's as is the case with most MCs. Uh, the voice part uh, was pretty much sorted itself out early on. Yeah. The problem for me was finding the the opportunities to to be heard, and yeah. so the reason I gravitated very quickly to hip hop in my late teens was just because it was an art form that kind of braided together a lot of things, a lot of requirements that I had to meet in the community that I grew up in. So first thing was. You can't be into the arts because uh, that's too feminine, that's too soft. So you can't be into Mm -hmm. acting, you can't be into music. So I gave up musical instruments, I gave up acting. But with rap, it's an art form that involves words and performance and music. But you can kind of play up to the more masculine traits 
in a such a way that wards people off the scent of the fact that you're actually just being artistic and creative. Yeah. And in that context, that was quite important. The other thing was it was an art form because it arises out of poverty. You don't have to own anything to participate in it. Yeah. And your story and your experiences are the currency. The authenticity is the currency. So suddenly experiences that maybe in my, my, my earlier life I would have been embarrassed about or ashamed of, like not always having nice clothes or my mum being a bit of a drunk in the community at times. Uh, these became things I could talk about in music. So I would experience the catharsis of working through them. I would experience the, the increased self-esteem and confidence of setting about the challenge of writing about something and successfully doing it. But also, once I started to kind of move away from Pollock, and find the local hip-hop community. Because I'd spent so much time working on my skills, I hit with a big impact locally, much faster than than a lot of the people that were coming up at the time, because there was not a time that I couldn't rap. There yeah. was not a time where it was in question, was I, was I skilled or not? Um, because I didn't come out of my room until I was able to do it competently. And, uh, and so really that became the focal point of my life through homelessness, addiction, all the usual stuff that occurs in your 20s, you know, when a lot of the trauma comes back to haunt you and you've got a different level of culpability in the eyes of society. You're yeah. no longer a victim, you know what I mean? You're a menacing young adult. And uh, if it wasn't for rap, then uh, who knows what would have happened. But this got me a name locally to the extent that opportunities out with hip-hop started to, to come towards me. And uh, the, the continuity between all the different strands of what I do and what I've done is that message. Always trying to bring discussion where it's relevant back to class. Social class is an objective metric that we can determine roughly a person's outcomes based on the postcode that they grew up in and how we can actually change that as a society to make things a little bit more fair. And, and so music, you have a different audience, so you tackle that in different ways with the books that's, again, a different medium. It's a different skill. And the broadcasting uh, is the same. These all require different uh, gears to get into, and I enjoy mm. being able to switch between them. But if you study across all the different work that I have done, newspaper columns, programmes, films, albums, videos, podcasts, whatever, it's always that continuity of the message. It's, it's always about carrying that message, whatever the medium happens to be. I love it, and it's really interesting picking each of those different mediums, the the different ways in which the end product is presented as such. Like, I love that you touched upon the kind of, you, you, you could hide your artisticness in rap. Um, and I think that's, it's one of the things, freestyling is such a popular and important thing in the history of rap, is because, again, it presents as, Oh, I'm just doing this casually. It's just, it's it's not a big thing. Whereas my thing was always exactly as you say. Like, you don't want anyone to know that because I'm not, I, I didn't really do any any freestyling stuff, but still, anytime I'd, I'd release something, you are kind of hiding the fact that I've spent hours in my bedroom slaving over this and, and, yeah. and really putting my heart and soul into it. But still, you want to have that appearance of, here's just some stuff that I happen to have, have yeah. come up with. It's like, no, 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 a lot of work w- w- went into this. And it's the opposite with literature. With yeah. literature, you're meant to have slaved away for years, for decades, for whatever else to really mm-hmm. put the work in. So the parallels there are, are stark. Yeah, definitely. And and one of the harder lessons that I learned when I made the transition, I mean, I still, music's still the first passion. I'm always trying to get back to it. I'm always yeah. trying to pull the trigger on a project or tinker with lyrics. I'm, I still make contact with lyrics every day, messing about, whether it's even just working on a rhyme scheme, just to yeah. keep that part of the brain active. Because yeah. as an MC, I grew up in an environment where it was all very on contact. You could be called upon at any minute to show your skill set. And so you always had to be kind of ready for that. It's a bit Mm -hmm. different now. And maybe in some ways that's better for the new generation. But I'm from a school where it's in you, it's part of who you are, and you always have to be able to demonstrate it. You know what I mean? But when I made the transition from, from that to writing the book, I had only really ever learned about structure by putting albums together which I think I did pretty well on some occasions in my catalogue when, you know, the the, the different uh, forces converge in a way to produce a body of work that 
you just know has got something more to say than maybe some other stuff that you've done. And that yeah. doesn't happen all the time. It's quite special when it does. Yeah. So learning about structure, you know, what should the first track be? It's the introduction and then you bring it down a wee bit and you're applying sort of screenwriting principles to it in terms mm -hmm. of how an album peaks and troughs and the different divergences it goes through. So I just applied that to, to writing the book yeah. in terms of the chapter structure. But what I didn't take into consideration was if you resequence an album, a draft of an album, and then you think, well, I'm going to swap track seven with track, track two and just to play with the structure, you just have to hit play and, you know, 30, 40 minutes later, you've got a sense of how it's sounding. But if you do that with a book, then the book becomes this unwieldy thing. So when you start trying to do that kind of structure, then it means that you're 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 increasing your workload. And I'm a bit ADD as well, so I get overwhelmed by open tabs and documents and too many notes and this research and there and there. And so the first book was a real hard lesson for me in terms of never set about writing a book without a plan, mm. without an outline to follow. And yes, it will change as you go, but you have to have a structure. You have to have the template of a structure to pour the creativity into, or yeah. it just becomes this kind of shapeless thing that you're just totally rudderless in. So with the second book, just looking at it from a writing perspective, it was quite late in the day where I realised that I had made the same mistake, and it took then a year once I filed the manuscript into the publisher they got back to me like, this is great, what you've done is brilliant, but you've written three books. And I was like, I had a feeling I had written more than one book, you know? <laughs> and it was it was just because I was second-guessing myself because I thought, right, well, people liked the first book and that was a kind of braiding of memoir and analysis and yeah. report reportage. So I'll just go and do more of the same. So I travelled down to Lancaster West Estate, Loki took me around the, the estate, told, mm -hmm. gave me all the lowdown on the, the Grenfell tragedy, all of the stuff that he really specialises in, in terms yeah. of the links between all the different institutions, corporations, even past some people's houses that were big players and and everything that went fucking wrong there. So I wrote that up, went to Margate, local artists took me around the community, I wrote all that up. So I had loads of good content. It was like having a batch of brilliant songs. Mm. But then it's like when you put them all together, it's like some of the stuff just doesn't fit. Yeah. So it took a year. It took a year to edit the second book. A year, wow. which is just unheard of, really. It didn't need to take that long. But thankfully, when I turned it in and it came out, and at least critically so far, it's done really well. And that's really about then the lesson there is having people on hand to help you and asking for help and making use of that help and saying, look, game's a bogey. I kind of know what I'm doing, but I need to be kind of like supported. Yeah. And uh, they were so helpful with that that process. But uh, it's complicated changing gears from musician to writing or broadcasting. It's really interesting as well because when you when you put an album out, as you say, there's the, there's a big process to get in there. But equally, I think with albums, once it's out, it's not finished you're still going to end up playing those songs live. You might move things around. You might change things around. Whereas with a book, it's the book. And I love the idea of having people there who can say to you, look, what you've got here is good. Here's how it could be great. Yeah. And let's put in the work to get to great rather than just go with this is really good and and, yeah. and having that to tweak it and, and take it up to that next level. Yeah, and the thing with working with a publisher is also you can more reliably believe that they are really in your corner mm. because the person that you're dealing with at a publisher is not the bean counter. The person you're dealing with is the person who wants to publish the best book that yeah. it could possibly be. Yeah. Now, obviously, they have to consider certain economic factors into it, and that's all good and proper. But there were never any points in the book where I felt like I was being nudged in a direction that I didn't want to go in. If anything, there was points in the book where I could feel this temptation to pull my punches a wee bit. Because yeah. in the pandemic, suddenly I experienced this real economic shock. After Poverty Safari, the money was flowing in. I was enjoying lots of opportunities. And then lockdown happened, and then I got my first tax bill in. And I wasn't financially literate. I was registered as self-employed, so I didn't know basic things. Like, mm. you have to pay your tax, and then you also have to pay half of next year's tax on the yep. same day. So yep. suddenly I went from feeling quite comfortable to, to being in a big mountain of debt. 
Mm. And so there was new incentives coming into play in the creative process that I'd never experienced before where I was like, well, hang on, how can I tell affluent middle class people that their apathy is the main problem when they are my main audience now? Because right. that's a very challenging thing for them to read and for them to hear. And my experience yeah. shows me that anyone who tells them the truth about that is marginalised or doesn't get the same level of opportunity. But every time I kind of started to to, to to give into that new incentive, the publisher was on me and they were like, no, 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 no. We know this isn't you. Don't be afraid to say exactly what you think because for all yeah. the people that might drop off, there's going to be new people that come on board with what you've got to say. Yeah. And I think there was only one instance where they suggested a cut in the thing uh, when I was writing about Jeremy Kyle and media generally. And I declined, I says, and I remember exactly what I said to them. I says, listen, I've I've taken on board 95% of your suggestions and implemented them, and I think that they've all been great. But this is like my guitar solo, this part yeah. of the book. Yeah. And I just, every time I read it, I can feel how emotional I still feel about it. And I think mm. that a lot of readers will get a buzz out of it as well, just seeing Kyle really getting the kind of lip service that he deserves, you know? Mm-hmm. And really just being told, he won't read it, but somebody who knows him will read it and they won't tell him about it because they'll know it's true, but they want to spare his feelings. Yeah. And uh, so there are some times where you stand your ground and you trust your judgment. And then there are other times that I think it's wise to defer to the people who have got objective eyes on what you're working on. Yeah. So so, so what was the the inspiration for the, the, the social distance between us? And what was the intent? Like, like again, I love, I loved reading about and hearing about the on the ground research you did to to look into these things and all that. And I love projects where, yeah, there's, I don't know, I I get it a lot with the podcast. Like, it's w- wicked that I get an episode to put out and people enjoy it. But the biggest benefit for me is what I learn in that mm-hmm. conversation and how I then implement that in my l- l- life and what I take away. And it feels like that you've. You've really actively gone, I want to go on this journey and learn these things. And also there's a book yeah. <laughs> as such. Yeah, exactly. So the idea really, uh, at first when I when I got the, the deal uh, for the second book, it was one of those ones, it's like a CV where you got offered a job. So you just say you can do it because you need the job, but you've not really thought about <laughs> what it yeah. involves. Yeah. And, and so then and the first phase of it was really just going out a bit like music. You just sort of follow your heart, what interests you, what's coming to mind, and then you create a bunch of content and then you start looking for what is the thematic echoes in these things? What is this really about? And then you start trying to piece it together. But it was really it was really in the onset of lockdown where this idea of proximity started to loom large because of social distancing. Mm. And, and I started to see it as a metaphor Uh, for class and so then that really then refocused me and then I created a lot of new content in lockdown which was very challenging my kids were even younger then my wife was working from home so uh, it was challenging just like everybody's lockdown experience was challenging but also just kind of what I enjoyed given given that I I live a clean and sober life 95% of the time now when I say that I just mean I've had a couple of relapses in the last 10 years but mm-hmm. my aspiration is to stay clean but in lockdown I did benefit from being a little closer to the edge of my sanity than is usually safe mm-hmm. because it's in there that a bit of magic happens creatively where a bit of fire comes in where a bit more courage and a willingness to show your teeth a wee bit more yeah. a bit more anger and while obviously but not having anywhere to go to get yourself in trouble when you are at that point if yeah. you kind of think being home and grounded with your family in that state is ideal it got channeled into the book and so that's yeah. why the, the book tonally differs from the first book in the sense that the first book I was really in a kind of pink cloud in my recovery at that time my wife and I were living in a lovely big flat in a lovely community a successful crowdfund meant I could stop working my other jobs and just focus on writing we were learning how Amazing. to look after our first kid and Everything was really rosy and sweet, and so I could kind of afford to have this highly tolerant, pragmatic attitude towards the people that I disagreed with and not all Tories are cunts and all of this sort of stuff that can, when you're feeling a wee bit more spiritually enlightened, really help to raise your quality of life in terms of understanding every individual has a rich tapestry of experiences and motivations and all that. But then 
when I was going out and, and actually witnessing firsthand again the world I came from and mm. being reminded of the toll it's taken on people from 10 years of austerity, from all of the institutional intransigence, political point scoring, and, uh, and this just managed decline. The anger started to come back because I realised I was growing remote from the very communities that I had always tried to speak in defence of. And so then I kind of penny dropped where I was like, this book can be, on one hand, an analysis of reporting on the ground. It can be a commentary and analysis of the wider issues. But then also there can be a thread running through it where I'm self-aware enough to recognise that I'm going on that journey of becoming remote as a result of success that I have experienced and how that changes the material conditions of my life, which changes my sense of aspiration, which changes my economic interests. You go from thinking, I've got no money to to do the basic stuff in life, to discussions about moving to a house because you need a driveway. And it's like, you know, and these are the, this is, and so it's like, I think that's the hook for the middle class people who I'm worried about offending because mm-hmm. there's a part of them that knows they're on that journey, but it's yeah. a very private part of them that they don't really discuss out, out, out in the open. They know that they're having to make compromises to their basic integrity to guarantee their security and the security of their children. And and when enough people are willing to do that on a mass scale, that's how you end up with a society that's as lopsided as Britain is. Because a lot of people know that they're complicit in a kind of capitalist scandal. But as long as their house prices remain stable, then they'll swallow any old shite for a quiet two-driveway life. And that is, unfortunately, one of the big problems we've got. I think that's fantastic. And I think it's a rare and important voice, someone who's experienced both sides of this. Because again, I think it's it's a problem I end up arguing with a lot on, or I used to argue a lot with on social media. I try not to get into arguments on social media anymore because it seems fruitless. But um, is when people are, are looking at, for example, in that period of the pandemic when the Black Lives Matter movement was starting to happen and there was a lot of rioting, you could see people saying, rioting isn't the answer. And you can sit there and go, you're possibly right, but we're, you can look at that calmly and rationally and without emotion. Whereas if someone, I was going to say someone in your community has been killed, if people in your community are repeatedly being killed, then rationality and calmness and a freedom of emotion is out the window. Equally, like people can, can go back to my two episodes with Akala to hear in history when violence has been the answer and, yeah. and disruptive activism has been the only only solution. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting to have someone who can speak on, on both sides of that. You can say, look, I understand your view because I have sat there in better positions in my life and gone... You know, let's look at it from everyone's point of view. Yeah. Let's be rational. The Sam Harris, the Sam Harris above the fray kind of yeah. perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. And it's like, well, equally, I know that if some stranger walks up to me in the street and punches me in the face, they're probably in a dark place. There's probably something wrong. There's probably rational stuff. When I've just been punched in the face, my reaction might not be, "Are you okay, man?" My yeah. reaction might be, "Fuck you, mate." And yeah. and you know, it's 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 those things. It's it changes that. So yeah, that's exciting to have that voice to where you are on the journey in this book. The fact yeah. to have, have gone from maybe the, the the people that you're talking about to maybe that more overseeing eye to back to. No, but remember this, you know, yeah. it's an interesting yeah. journey. Well, I mean, before we wrap things up, I want to talk about the tour because it always excites me when someone becomes established and exciting as a writer, but they've got the experience of stagecraft, of performance, of all Mm. of these things. Because I've been to book readings or whatever else in the past of books that I'm passionate about and I've been bored as fuck. Whereas the people I know who can make it not a book tour, and this doesn't sound like it's a book tour, this is a... uh, a tour that's come from what you've learned on the book and the content of the book, but it's its own thing. It is a speaking tour. It is a show. It is a yeah. a thing. So tell me a bit about um yeah the social distance between us as as a tour. Well, one of the the things that I've tried to do is still make keep in touch with that performance dimension mm-hmm. of what I do. It's easy just to get swallowed up by all the new opportunities that come. 
but I take a lot of pleasure in being on stage because I think for me that is the real freedom. I don't have an editor. I don't have a producer. What I have is just in the moment, my experience, what I'm feeling from the audience and my instincts. And there is something immensely freeing about that, liberating about that. And really what I try to do with the the books is to offer a supplementary experience. So it's not a like for like uh, adaptation. Uh, the, the, The live show always looks at another dimension that isn't as explored in the book. So with Poverty Safari, really what I was doing with the live show at the Fringe was using a lot of the the rap the stuff that I had written to to really kind of hammer home to the audience that one of the reasons that they don't look at, at rap as a legitimate art form is because of the classist assumptions that come with it. Because what I, what I managed to do was get hundreds of people every day to come into a theatre and watch me do a show that was eighty percent Scottish rap, mm-hmm. but no one questioned it because it was in a theatre. Mm-hmm. And because they're in a theatre, they're already primed. They're thinking this is a this is a prestigious cultural experience. So it's in my interest to get whatever's going on, or I'm going to look dumb. And so it's like you're kind of you're predisposing the audience in a different way, rather yeah. than the usual hip hop iconography with the graffitied wall pu- pu- and the purely urban being at, purely being at the fringe has has that effect. I remember yeah. B Dolan and Sade Francis coming over and doing a fringe run. And I was like, I don't know how this will work because it's going to be essentially a rap show. Mm. And it was amazing. They yeah. killed it for the whole month and it was an astounding show. And they could have done that show just on a tour in hip-hop venues and it would have been a completely different audience and a completely different reach. But the fact that it was at the Fringe made people go, all right, well, what is this? Where's the art in this? And there's always been the art in it. You know, it, they didn't change the art that was in it people were just more willing to look at it and find it rather than just go, ah, it's some rap thing. Yeah, 100%. And I I learned an important lesson about how you contextualise hip-hop in a performing space Mm. is really something that has to be considered as well as the content of your show. Um, So doing it in a theatre or in a comedy venue, it presents a new challenge as an artist for me. Also the chance to take Scottish hip-hop and rap into new places. Mm -hmm. Um, So still making a contribution to the culture in that sense. But then with the second show, with the social distance between us, uh, really it's taking this theme of proximity but applying it to me in a more personal sense. So obviously it still deals with politics, there's commentary, there's some rap in there, but it's talking about how the experience that I've gone on, which essentially I've changed social class, the problems of proximity that that's created in my personal life or the challenges that it's created. You know, my children, uh, they're raised in a, a... They still live in a kind of working-class community. We still have a Greg's around the corner on five bookies and the, the, the off-licence masquerading as a grocery. But... Um, <laughs> They don't experience uh, the other things that come with working class life, which is a kind of constant sense of financial insecurity. Mm -hmm. Their opportunities aren't suppressed because we can't afford to do certain things. And Mm -hmm. so they still face different stresses in life. Their mum and dad obviously being very busy all the time and preoccupied with stuff, sometimes overly so. But it's a different experience socially for them and culturally. And so it means that, in a sense, sometimes I've found that I've been kind of alienated from my children because in my desire to create for them a better life than I experienced, I also put expectations. They they, they also develop expectations, which to me seem kind of weird. Like my son expects his clothes to be heated in the morning when he comes downstairs and my daughter, when she comes down every morning, her first question is, where am I going today? What's just in that question is encoded a certain kind of expectation about her mobility as yeah. a four-year-old, where every day she's going somewhere. And that yeah. just wasn't the case when I was a kid. And then it also kind of looks at, you know, becoming distant from the community. The problems that I experience now are still very real to me, but they're problems that I would be very anxious to share with a friend who's still really in the madness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, for example, they are complaining, no complaining, but talking about financial problems related to not understanding the tax system, right? Other people will look at that and they'll go, well, you must have made a lot of money to have that kind of problem. Mm. And it's like, well, yes, but it's a real problem to me. But obviously I can understand why it seems to you a bit vulgar for me to, to say that it's a problem. And so yeah. you suddenly you, you realise how affluent people start to congregate in their own little ghettos 
It's because they can comfortably discuss all the things that they're interested in and the problems that they're having without feeling embarrassed or self-conscious that somebody who's on benefits or somebody who has a chronic health condition or somebody who's an alcoholic is going to go, what a bunch of poshos you are. These aren't problems. Fuck your driveway. It's, it's your interesting, isn't it? I, I love the relativity of problems and the framing of problems. Someone highlighted something to me really well a few years back that if you get to a point in your life and it's becoming less and less likely in as society is now, but where you get to get your first mortgage, because of insurance rates and because of all these different things, you put a deposit down and you're going to end up paying more than 100% of the value of that house. So you own something like minus 15% of that house. So the person who walks past your house owns more of your house yeah. than you do. So, so you're in this situation of, oh, I've got my first mortgage and all that. And it's like, and your mate who's on benefits is like, yeah, I own more of your house than, yeah. than you own. It's a, it's a powerful f- framework, particularly if, if uh, any instincts of superiority were to start to climb in when you start to get up those ladders. It's like, no, yeah. mate, don't even think about no, it. it you realise it's a, a lot of it is debt. You know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. when we talk about how we have a car or we yeah. talk about how we have a house, what we're really saying is we have debt. Yeah. But it's sort of unspoken, you know. That, but it's, that, debt that, that we, that it's debt that you've been allowed to have and there's yes. other people who wouldn't be trusted to have that debt. And yeah. that's the weird yeah. difference there, So that, that's the idea of the show. Um, I did a run at the Fringe. It went well and I was I got the chance to play. I moved up from the lower hall at mm-hmm. the Stand Comedy Club to the, the Grand Hall. Which yeah, is where amazing. a lot of the greats played. Stuart yeah. Lee was on the same day as me. He was on just before me, and it. so it was a brilliant challenge for me. And I was very grateful to the stand for for taking a chance and moving me up there. And I'm going to be up there again this year because uh, I'd done a few runs in the lower hall, which was great, and the environment's all very contained. But the stage was very small, mm-hmm. and I like the idea of getting to play on that bigger stage, even if you're not necessarily selling it out every day. Mm-hmm. A venue like that, even if it's half full, it's enough to get the crowd to a tipping point where you can really create a vibe that you can manipulate in the room. So I think I'm going to be doing, I can't remember the dates offhand, but I know I'm playing Liverpool. I know I'm playing Newcastle. Well, uh, I mean, I was, I was going to say, I'm going to give give the dates in the intro and the outro because there's something just, I think, incomparable to being in a room for any show, but particularly for a show like this. Um mm. I'm a big <laughs> I get emotional at, at live events and 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 live gigs and this kind of show from everything I know about it excites me so much because there's something so powerful of being in a room with other people all connecting to something at once particularly when it's something that a subject that is so important at the moment and so drenched in emotion and and reality and just importance in our lives and yeah. yeah obviously i encourage people to buy the book you'll be able to order that right now but as i said in the intro and the outro i'll be pushing all the dates because as i said i don't think there's anything that compares you can't recreate it's the thing that was the most exciting or highlighted when we went through the lockdowns and things mm-hmm. like that was i would w- watch stand-up gigs or whatever else on my own and it wouldn't hit the same even to watching yeah in my living room with someone else there. Me and my brother used to watch a lot of stand-up. I ended up watching no stand-up or live stuff after about a week of the lockdown because I was like, nah, it doesn't hit the same. I need someone else next to me to feel that and have that shared experience. You could be watching something that is objectively funnier and better written on Mm. TV and it won't hit the same as something which is objectively less well written yeah but it's happening in a live space where everyone yeah. is have it, it's the, the the cumulative effect of everyone's reactions that's given the material it's extra weight yeah. so there's just no substitute for the live experience really um I and I've, I've 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 seen stand-ups in particular which is an art form i think of all the art forms i think that is the people who do that really well are very very skilled and very very brave Mm. and so much respect for anyone who even attempts it uh, on a regular basis. But I've watched a, a show 
that's all filmed and looks the piece. And then I've seen it live. And, you know, even being in being in the room, to bear witness to it with other people, like you say, I think yeah. it, it becomes a more memorable experience, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. And just as said, it's a beautiful thing to, to laugh with other people, but to have those emotional beats hit in a room full of other people, it's indescribable because it is a silent thing. There's not the laughter. There's not the vocal notice, vocally noticeable laughter, but there is something when you all feel something, a point get made or something hit, that's just, it's, it's, it feels almost supernatural that you're all, that you can feel that you're around other people who are feeling that, even though yeah. there's no, as said, physical cues for that. So yeah, I'm excited for, for, for all of that, but I'm going to let you get back to your kids to see where your daughter is going to go today. I'm, I'm fascinated <laughs> to find out the answer to that. Um, and yeah, I appreciate you taking the time, man. It's been a joy speaking. I'm glad we got round to it. I said, you've been requested for a long time um, and I think timing is everything and I'm really glad we got to have this conversation when we have. No, brilliant, man. I'm grateful to spend a bit of time with you and I'm going to be actually, I think I'm doing it off the grid festival or something in July, which I think is kind of Essex way. Yeah. I don't know how big Essex great, is or if great. that's near you or anything I'll like that. I'll have a look. I'll have a look. But um, uh, that's happening in, I think, July. So maybe I'll link up with you at some point then as well. That would be amazing. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and I look forward to all that's ahead, my friend. Brilliant, man. Have a great day, okay? You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was episode 499. Man, the next episode is 500. I want to thank everyone who's been listening from the start, everyone who's joined in along the way, everyone who's joined in along the way and gone back to the start, everyone who just dips in and dips out, all of you. It's amazing. And what an episode this was, right? As I said, this was going to be later in the in the month but I felt it was such a strong conversation and such a a, re- a relevant one right now that I was like I want to get this one out and I want to get it in people's ears so yeah hope you enjoyed that I'll be back next week with the podcast debut of the man the myth the legend the best producer in podcasting Mr Buddy Peace is going to be on the podcast with me for episode 5 Hundred. It's going to be a special one. It's going to be a celebration. I'll see you then. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.